This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 85 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Shiv Bassi, the founder and CEO of Innermost. Innermost is an award-winning wellness brand that uses research-based science to craft targeted nutritional products that address your health and fitness needs across body and mind. In this episode, Shiv shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up as a first-generation Brit in West London to working for 10 years at Goldman Sachs to deciding to finally start his own company, Innermost. We talk about how his mother's regret of not starting her own business propelled him to want to start his own, how he came up with the name Innermost, how he sold into over 100 boutique fitness studios within his first year, and what his five habits for success are. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe. We'd love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Shiv. How are you doing? Thanks so much for joining the show. I'm super excited to uh, hear your story about building Innermost. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lee. I've been uh, waiting for this call for a while, so very excited to be speaking to you. And you're all prepared with your new microphone. It's amazing. You went all out. I went all out. I bought this podcast microphone just for you. So yeah, all set. Hopefully people Why, can thank hear you. Wow, I feel so special. <laughs> the show's getting to the point now where people are buying microphones to be on it. <laughs> it's an amazing show, I have to say, Lee. I've listened to some of your your uh, previous interviews and um, yeah, really helpful, really great. I learned a huge amount from listening to some of them. So uh, yeah, great what you're doing. Oh, appreciate that so much. Which one um, is your favorite? Which one did you listen to? I listened to a few last week. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was various brands in the US. I uh, can't remember now the, the chap name, but just great practical advice for entrepreneurs. To be honest with you, I'd wish I'd come across it when I, before I was launching the brand. Would have been a lot more helpful. But uh, no, still, <laughs> still, still lots of great pieces of information and knowledge to take. Yeah, that's part of the reason I started it. I was like, I really want to have these kind of conversations with founders. Those those conversations for me as a founder were the most valuable. Investors, advisors, they're all great. But to talk to another founder who's been in the trenches is is pretty helpful. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So let's start with your story. Where are you from originally? And tell us about your childhood growing up. Yeah, so my name's Shiv, obviously, founder of um, of Innermost. Kind of going back then. Way back. <laughs> Way back, way back here. <laughs> You're not um, that old. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's what I like to tell people. Um, but um, yeah, so going back, I guess just kind of uh, my story to a large extent is going to be informed by my parents' story. They were both a first generation or rather immigrants to the UK in the 60s. And they were born in a place in northern India called the Punjab often regarded as the breadbasket of India. 90% of the agriculture 
uh, and the food is grown in the Punjab region of India, which is right near the north, just below the Himalayas. My mum moved here when she was 18 years old. My dad moved here when he was 23. Both of them came for their own individual reasons, but a lot of those reasons were tied into their family. My mum came here, moved with to, in with her two brothers who were married. So she lived in a house with two of her brothers, their wives, a bunch of kids. Uh, she was 18, so she'd been to boarding school in India, and then she left that behind to join her brothers. My dad was the oldest son in his family, and there's a huge... Culturally, there's a huge amount of responsibility on your shoulders if you're the older son. So he came here at the age of 23, 24 to make his way, uh, earn his fortunes, kind of save up money, earn money, save up money and send it back to his family to look after them and help them get settled. So um, they moved here in the 60s. They met in the 70s and they met in London, fell in love, bought a house, had my brother and then had me. Uh, And that was essentially... Kind of like uh, our our story. I am the youngest. I'm the baby of the family, as I like to tell everyone. How many years apart? Really only two years. So we're quite similar ages uh, and had similar upbringings and similar experiences kind of education-wise. I think that was probably the number one thing that my mum really drummed into us. It was the importance of education. She had a real belief rightly so, that education would be the thing that would enable us to break out of this cycle and do something extraordinary. Do you think that's true today? It's different. I think, yeah, now you've got apprenticeships and there's lots of different economic issues that weren't really as much. Going to university now in the UK costs a lot of money. So you hear stories about students coming out of university with huge debts. When I was going to university, it was probably the first year where we had to contribute. Up until that point in the UK, your education was free. So going to university, getting an education and going to university was kind of like really important as well as um, kind of like giving you a leg up and an opportunity to apply for roles that in the city or kind of professional kind of corporations and multinationals, a lot of them were looking for people with university degrees. I think that has changed. Obviously, when I went to university, it was a long time ago, but I think it still does matter. It does count, but there's lots of other routes now as well, I think. And so what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? I didn't really know, to be honest. Uh, we didn't have uh, anyone in our family. My brother was the first Bassi, so my surname is Bassi, B-A-S-S-I. He was the first Bassi to go to university. Um, he went to UCL, which is in central London, and then I went to Imperial, which is kind of like the equivalent for all your American listeners of MIT. So that was in London. Really, even going to university, we didn't really know what we wanted to do. and uh, We didn't have an uncle or someone related to us who we could sit down with and ask for advice. We really were trying to find our own way. My mum was keen for us to go to university. Thankfully, we were bright kids, did well in our studies, and um, we just figured, you know, let's get to a good university, let's do a really rock-solid degree, and we can figure the rest out from there. So we both did engineering degrees, and I absolutely hated engineering. I can remember going to Imperial, and in the first two weeks, I was like, what the hell am I doing? I'm doing like something I hate doing, but. Oh God, sounds like a miserable few years. How did you keep going with it if you didn't like it? I, I, well, to be honest, like for us, going to university was a means to an end. We had like aspirations to be have successful careers and doing a degree in engineering, which is a really, really well-respected degree, I felt would put us in a really strong position to do what we wanted to do. Ultimately, engineering is a lot of maths. What you wanted to do? You mean what you hated doing? I mean, <laughs> well, well, I didn't realize I hated it as much until I got to the, got the university. I mean, okay. I, I do say that slightly tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> I do enjoy I do enjoy maths and being analytical. So there is elements of that. But there were, it was it was a pretty dry degree lately. I have to say, if I could go back, I kind of speak to friends sometimes and say, you know, I had a real interest in history, and I still do to this day. I love history, just learning about the past and how you can kind of learn lessons for the present. So history is great. Philosophy is amazing. And that's something I really enjoy. So if I could go back in time, I might advise my younger self, just do what you enjoy doing. Go to a good university, but do what you enjoy doing and do it well. And you know you can get good grades. That doesn't really limit your, your options when it comes to finding a job. So I would have done history, philosophy, something along those lines. But anyway, ended up doing engineering. 
So what were some of the first jobs that you had, whether it was in college or high school? Yeah, I guess the first proper job I had uh, was at Goldman Sachs. So an investment bank, I'm sure you kind of heard of them. So I went to university and in my first year, I was kind of like, just like seeing what kids were saying and like just getting to kind of grips with this kind of new experience. And at that time, lots of people wanted to work in investment banking. I'm sure lots of people still want to work in investment banking, but... Well, and how did you go from engineering to finance? Well, engineering is maths and it's analytics. It's very analytical. And I and I realized that choosing that degree, I knew that if I wanted to get into finance, if I wanted to get into something like computing or e-commerce, like engineering would be a great degree to have. And like I said, go to a good university, do a decent degree, get good grades, and pretty much you can do pretty much what you want. I mean, to be honest, I mean, you could do a degree in history, you could do it in arts, and provided it's a good university, you get good grades and you show that you're capable, options will be make themselves available to you. So... Lots of kids wanted to do investment banking, and I was a first year. Why investment banking? Like, how did you hear about this? You said you didn't have an uncle, you know, that kind of was in this space. So you didn't have people kind of saying, hey, this is a direction you should check out. So how did you come across investment banking? Why did you choose that? Well, there were two things. One, everyone on campus seemed to be talking about investment banking, got to work in investment banking. This is the glory days of investment (laughs) banking, right? Okay. So uh, it was like, wow, you want to be a banker. Also... Like my mom growing up, like she didn't really have much advice for us other than make sure you do your homework and work hard. But one of the things that she would often say to us would be, I don't want you to be a doctor or a dentist. I don't want you looking at people's mouths all your life. Being a dentist is not a bad profession. It's an amazing profession, but um, she didn't want that for us. But she would often she'd, she'd be big into the news and you know, reading the, fi- the, fi- the financial papers. And uh, she'd often say like, I mean, Great for you to do something like that. She didn't exactly know what that was, but um, seeing these guys wearing suits and going into like the city with briefcases, uh, she was, she, she, I think fancy. we knew, yeah, she, it looked yeah. fancy. I think she thought mm, it'd be good if you could guys could go down that route. Now, that right. combined with the fact that everyone on campus was talking about investment banking, it just seemed like the thing to do. What I did, Lee, was um, apply for an internship at Goldman Sachs in my first year. Although I was supposed to wait until my second year because they only took applications from people in the second year when they're in their second year before their final year. But I applied early and um, I got an interview. So I went along to, I think it was like 18 interviews actually. So the process was really rigorous and robust. I think I had like three days. And- That's like worse than Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> so I met a bunch of people. I was a young kid, obviously, just like first year uni. And then... Um, Everyone did say, look, you've applied one year early, but uh, they liked me. I was very confident. I was quite ballsy and uh, went into the interview, did really well. And they offered me an internship, but they said, you can't come this summer. You're going to have to wait until the end of your second year. So I was like, fine. So I waited a year and then went and did an internship at Goldman Sachs. All right. So you landed this internship. Your mom's probably so excited. Yes. Like, oh my God, he's going to be wearing a suit to work. Yes. Big time. <laughs> so how was the internship? And then you were there for over 10 years. So talk to us about how the internship went and, and how you managed to stay for 10 years. Yeah. So I had the internship. So it was in the asset management division in London and there were six of us. So six of us were offered internships. And uh, I was one of them, Uh, went in, it was for eight weeks, the internships are two months. And we spent different time on different desks within asset management. And for me, it was just great learning experience. The first time I worked in a office kind of environment and, um, you know, I just seized the moment, just, um, you know, really tried my best to make a good impression, worked really hard. At the end of the eight weeks, everybody went their own way or were supposed to go their own way and go off on their summer holidays before the final year of uni. What I did was uh, in the sixth week, I started sending out emails to a bunch of different kind of like managing directors across various different um, teams in Goldman's. And um, my email was, hey, I'm an intern in the asset management division. I love what you're doing on your desk. I kind of picked some desks that I really liked the look of and asking whether I could just come and work with them for a few weeks at the end of this internship. And I'd be happy to do it for free. I just want to get some experience. 
And I did that. And I sent one to a chap called Christian Siva Jyoti, who was a real big deal at Goldman Sachs. He still is a big deal. He's not a Goldman's anymore, but he's still a big deal. Why was he a big deal? He was uh, the head of the prop trading desk at Goldman's. So what they did was um, they trade Goldman's proprietary trading. So they trade Goldman's cash in the market. So, And he was like a superstar trader there. And um, his team you know, had a bit of a rep. So I'd emailed him directly, this young, foolish intern, just reaching out to this partner, managing director, and asked him if I could kind of spend some time on his desk. And he replied. And he asked me to come along and meet with him. So I met with him. And he said, yeah, sure, come spend some time on the desk. So I spent about three weeks on his desk, just observing what they were doing, going and buying sandwiches for the team. And uh, really just <laughs> getting <understand> coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Understanding what those go. It was a great experience. And um, I think that, that proactive nature was, I think people, that's just the way I was doing the whole internship. And I think people really liked it. And I just got stuck in and tried to get things done. And then at the end of the internship, I was the, I think I was the only one of the six people who was offered a full-time position when I graduated. With that guy? No, no, it wasn't that guy. It was on the asset management division, but yeah, no, it was great. It was amazing. So I accepted and then did my final year at uni and then um, joined full-time. And as you mentioned, yeah, I spent 10 years at Goldman Sachs. So across divisions, I spent some time in the asset management division. I spent some time working in New York on one of the M&A teams and then back in asset management and then ended up on the trading floor, fixed income, currencies and commodities. So I had a good experience across divisions, across regions, great learning experience. Do you think you would have gotten that job if you didn't email that person? I don't know, to be honest, but I think it was probably more kind of my attitude through the eight weeks. I think I was just, and I've, I've always been this way, just being very proactive, don't take no for an answer and just, you know, move heaven and earth to get things done. And I think that attitude is the kind of attitude that I look for now in people that I employ. You want people who are self-starters, who just, just get things done. Uh, and um, yeah, I think that was the attitude that they, I think they're like, oh, I'm guessing here. No one actually sat me down and told me why, but um, I'm guessing. No, they never tell you like, hey, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have looked at you twice. But I have a similar story of, um, you know, I was moving from the modeling industry into tech. And I'm like, really wanted to start a company. And I realized no one's going to invest in me at all unless I have some sort of chops in tech or around startups. And then there, so I realized there was this startup accelerator called Launchpad in LA that was just the best one, right? They were really just cranking out some amazing companies. I was like, wow, what an incredible place to learn, to you know, be around other entrepreneurs and just, wow, what, how cool would it be to be in that environment? So I saw that they were hiring for, for a, an associate on their website. <laughs> so I applied, of course, no response. I'm like, who is the guy running this, this show, right? So I find yeah. out who it is. It's this guy, Sam Teller. And I found a uh, mutual connection to this guy through a friend. And so I, I begged this friend for an intro, finally got an introduction, and it took weeks to get on this guy's calendar. You know, he's like, God, why do I have to meet with this girl? Like, what the hell does she want? So I finally get this meeting with Sam and I sit down and we're, he's like talk, asking me about my background. I have zero experience that's like nearly remotely relative to what they're doing at this accelerator, you know? And I'm trying to give it the big sell of like, I helped my dad with his company doing XYZ and I did this and I'm telling them about all this like other entrepreneurial stuff that I've tried to do and didn't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. And he's sitting there like, well, you know, we're not going to really be hiring for the next few weeks. And I'm like, that means F off. Like he's basically telling me to get out of here, like stop wasting my time. I'm like, if I don't say something crazy right now, I'm never going to see that again. <laughs> I just knew that. So I told him, I was like, listen, how about I start on Monday morning, nine o'clock AM. I'm going to be here. First one in last one out. I'm going to work so hard. I'm going to you know, create as much value as I can for your portfolio companies, whatever you need, I'll do it. I'm like, if you hate me, send me home. I'm, I'm going to work for free. So just like, whatever you need, you tell me. He was like, all right, I'll see you Monday. <laughs> oh, there you go. You know what? That is amazing, Lee. That is a great story. And, you know, I prescribe to that approach. Yeah, I mean, it worked. I worked my ass off. I ended up getting yeah, the title. Got... <laughs> yeah, amazing. You got to make this stuff yeah. happen. Like, yeah. you know, the limit. You're really only limited by the limits of your imagination. Just yes. make it happen sometimes. Force of personality. If you yes. want something bad enough, go after it. 
You have to give them something where they cannot say no, where there's zero risk for them. There was zero risk in me showing up other than I could be (laughs) maybe annoying or something. So I was like, listen, you hate me. You can send me home, but uh, give me a shot here. (laughs) I I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. So that turned into a 10-year career for you at Goldman Sachs, which is super impressive. During that time, what were some of the takeaways that you have from that experience that has helped you as a founder? I learned a, a huge amount. I mean, Goldman's a great place to to learn, um, you know, from customer focus to teamwork, all these kinds of values and principles that the firm has that they're very kind of, uh, they talk about very robustly, that all, all kind of seeps into your kind of, your makeup, your DNA, but also just kind of separately, just seizing the moment, going after things, thinking big, being tenacious, like that story you mentioned, just being tenacious and knowing that being tenacious can pay off and, you know, making things happen and not, not limiting yourself. You know, it was a dream. Like, you know, you could imagine my parents came from India in the 60s. We were born in this tiny, very humble, kind of modest upbringing. The first people in our, my brother and I, the first bastards to go to university and then ending up working at Goldman Sachs and working with some amazing people. It was kind of like, you know, you could argue that it was pretty rare, a rare kind of series of events for that to happen. So really seizing the moment, seizing that opportunity and realizing that, anything pretty much is possible. So all of that was really confidence building and um, yeah, just kind of a great, great all around experience. So how did you go from finance, you know, working at Goldman Sachs for so many years to building Innermost? Yeah. So I was, I said 10 years at Goldman's, uh, I always had, and it was a great experience, but I always had this nagging kind of gnawing feeling that I wanted to have my own business and test myself. Where did that come from though? Did you see someone who started their own business and you're like, that looks fun. Like, where does that come from? My mom and I both worked very hard, like when we were younger growing up, but my mom would often say like the one regret she had was that she didn't have her own, she didn't try her own business. My mom's a real go-getter, you know, she really wants to get things done and she's got lots of good ideas and she's one of those kinds of moms. She'd say that, you know, you guys were growing up and, you know, we had to work hard to make ends meet and give you guys opportunities and kind of like make sure that you had everything you needed to be to educate yourselves. And I really didn't feel I was able to take the risk because starting a business is a risk, right? Oh, yeah. So huge risk. She felt a huge, yeah, huge risk. So she felt, I never felt, I never really felt right that I could take that risk because we weren't in the position to do so. And um, she said it was the one regret she had. And that always stuck with me, kind of hearing her say that. And um, so partly that, and maybe it's just, you know, just some psychological kind of thing. But we've been raised in a way where, you know, we want to feel that, you know, we're creating something. We have kind of some control and some kind of control over our destiny. And I felt having my own business would really scratch those itches and kind of satisfy those kind of urges that I had. So it, it was in the back of my mind. Obviously, I've really applied myself at Goldman's and really worked hard. But just in the back of my mind, I'd have ideas and I'd test them out in the background in my own time. And I, I knew that after 10 years, there was, um, if I didn't at some stage try to set up my own business, I'd probably look back and always regret it, just like my mom kind of said to me that she did. So at the end of the 10 years at Goldman's, um, I left, actually set up a, a firm. My brother had set up a firm, so I joined him. We worked together for a while, and then that firm was bought out by a Danish bank. So it was a hedge fund, and it was bought out. And on the back of that, we were put on a two-year non-compete. And it was when we were put on the two-year non-compete, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. <laughs> what else am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, fate has aligned. The stars have aligned. I can do something now for two years and wow. not feel guilty about it. So what do you mean feel guilty about it? Well, not maybe that's not the right word, not feel guilty, but when you're working for a firm and you've got a paycheck coming in, it's different. And I had a successful career at Goldman's. It's difficult to, it, 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 it is difficult to walk away from that, to start something from scratch. So when we were on a two year non-compete, it kind of made me feel that, okay, this is an opportunity. I've got to use these two years now and do something with them rather than just sit on the beach. Uh, sipping pina coladas. I've got to do something with this time. Well, that's tempting too. And I think a lot of people 
that have that opportunity to sit on a beach and, and drink some pina coladas might actually choose that instead of the startup route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's not underestimate the allure of sitting on a beach and drinking pina coladas. I agree. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. I, probably, I probably couldn't. I probably wasn't in the position to do that. I kind of say it tongue in cheek. Um, right. But I, I thought, look, I got, I've got two years. Let me, let me try now. Let me at least try. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But at least I can look back and, you know, if I have kids one day, I can say to them, yo, I tried and I won't have that guilt. That's an interesting thing. I feel like that is um, such a trigger sometimes to or motivation to start something is, is that thought of if I don't do this, will I end up regretting what if it was successful? Because I think the only reason we maybe don't do things is the fear of it not working and the fear of failure and the fear of saying to your kids, yeah, I tried this thing and guess, and then it went bust. Like, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. or like, that's not a fun story. That's, to not, that's tell. not a good story. That's not, that's not one you're going to tell around the, around the fireplace on Christmas, is it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You want the success story so bad. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really tough for a lot of people to take that leap into starting something. Yep. And so here you're in this crossroad, you have two years and a non-compete and you're like, I think were you out of the place also where you felt like you didn't have anything to lose either? Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. I felt, I felt I had less to lose. I felt I had an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's worded much better than I did Lee. So yeah, absolutely. I didn't feel like I had as much to lose. And that was the, that was a catalyst. That was a catalyst. Like, okay, let me try this now. Let me go for this. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So why wellness? Why did you get into creating this brand? A couple of different things, I suppose. Uh, one is um, fitness, health has always been super important to me. Working at Goldman's, working in finance in general, super stressful, can be very stressful. And I think fitness and going to the gym, working out, that has really been something that I've hugely value ever since I went to, into a gym, stepped into a gym and worked out for the first time at the age of 15 or 16 a hugely beneficial kind of physically, but also mentally. Uh, it's been it's been a rock 
in in the sense that you know it's something that's always made me feel better if things are if times have been hard if things have been have, have gotten gone stressful so very important to me personally secondly i would say we grew up in a household where food was very much regarded as medicine so nutrition was for want of a better word was super important some of my earliest memories are going to kind of local markets supermarkets with my mom helping her out while she's picking out all these kind of exotic herbs and spices and nuts and various other things bringing them home and making them to these amazing kind of recipes and then feeding us them but her opinion very much is you know if you've got a if you've got a cold or whatever like here's a here's a glass of milk with some turmeric in it or here's a handful of nuts or here's some cherries and you know a lot of it is rooted in old wives tales but as you grow older you start reading the clinical research and there's hundreds of studies on how turmeric for example can kind of help with various kind of like illnesses and health issues so i mean there's a huge body of evidence out there to suggest how different kinds of food different ingredients can support your health and fitness in real ways and that's something that dawned on me as i grew older but it was kind of embedded in our minds growing up so health nutrition fitness super important to me at the time when i left Goldman's, I, I felt there was a real trend in the market. This is like four or five, maybe six years ago now. More and more people were looking to be healthier. But I felt the products on the market at that time were very much geared towards this niche consumer who was very technical. They actually, especially with the nutrition space, they weren't really trying to be healthier. They were just trying to gain muscle or do something which was outside of what we regard as being healthy now and i felt there was a disconnect there and like i said no more so was that disconnect apparent than within that nutrition space because a lot of the products nutritional supplements that you would see were packed with lots of artificial ingredients there's like ingredients in there that you don't really understand and i was sitting there thinking this is after 10 years at Goldman's, I was like really focused on my health and getting a bit better. I mean, I've kind of burnt myself out a little bit, to be honest. And, um, you know, I was kind of incorporating more natural ingredients into my diet. And then I kind of I was picking up again back in the gym and I was looking at these products and thinking, why am I having products that contain a load of ingredients that sound like, you know, they were kind of created in a lab. They sound really strange and weird. Why can't I have a product which actually has things like turmeric, cherries, berries, Japanese mushrooms, all of these kind of really interesting ingredients. Why can't I find those those kinds of products? And I couldn't. So I decided there's an opportunity here. Let me create a brand, call it Innermost, and let's go and take a really science-backed approach to nutrition. But let's incorporate lots of natural ingredients and let's create some amazing hero products that really cater to people's modern wellness needs. And, And that was ultimately it. It was because I wanted to use products like this and I really understood and appreciated the benefits of good nutrition and these ingredients and really taking a research-based kind of science-backed approach. And um, that was that. Amazing. And so what were some of those hero products that you first launched with? And how did you come up with the name Innermost? Yeah, so the name Innermost. Um, oh, wow. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, like I always love getting... these stories because it's like, well, we were, I was on the couch having a beer with a friend and uh, he said, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, <laughs> you know, it's always so fun in these stories. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I wish it was like, I wish, I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> I literally, I think I bought, I think I've got a dictionary lying around here somewhere that I bought. And literally I was just going through the dictionary, reading a, di- reading a damn dictionary, trying to find a good name. Problem is all these names, all these cool names are taken. So you find a name, you think it's amazing. You're, you're perfect. Eureka moment. You go online and you find out someone else has got it and um, they're selling pet food or they're selling, I don't know, socks for dogs or something, whatever. Anyway, so you go through this whole iterative process and, um, you know, you want to, you want the, you want the name to be perfect. So, you know, I went through a bunch of names and then, yeah, and I stumbled upon innermost and it just sounded amazing. Innermost. And so it's actually a word. It's I thought a it was word. a combo of two. It's a word. Innermost is actually a word. <laughs> the innermost thing within something. Innermost. Mm. But for me, it felt like it alluded to the fact that our products, our nutritional supplements, are more than just the basic. There's more in them. And then also it alludes to the individual, you know, getting more out of yourself. 
So that kind of like, you know, the innermost I word, it just kind of fit and I liked it. And I liked the ring of it. Tried it on a few times, innermost, innermost, said it, said it aloud five times in front of a mirror. And uh, yeah, it, it just, it just worked. So how long did it take you from seeing it in the dictionary and, and realizing, hmm, this is pretty good. Did you sit on it for a little bit, like a few days or were you just like, this is it, I'm done. I, I can't go move on to J, K, L, L, you know, through the dictionary. I'll just no, stop yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, no, um, pretty quickly. I, I mean, I kind of, I think it was pretty quick. So I kind of realized, okay, this is a name. And then obviously you have to go through the whole process of checking the trademarks in different countries. Is the URLs available, social media handles? That takes a while. And then as the boxes started getting ticked there, I was like, crap, I better jump on this before somebody else launches, I don't know, some retractable I don't know, hunting knife or something and calls it innermost. So um, yeah, just bought it then after that. And the URL, you actually have liveinnermost.com. Correct. Because nowhere, every single word in the dictionary has been bought, funnily enough. So uh, as you would imagine. <laughs> Someone literally went through the dictionary and just bought all the dot coms. Everything's gone. Everything's done. So now, yeah. So we needed a URL and I figured live in a most would be good. So our URL is live, L-I-V-E, in a most.com. And all of our social handles are at live in a most. Yeah, that's the, that's the name. And then obviously we have the trademarks for the innermost name across kind of pretty much globally, the US, Asia, uh, Middle East, UK, Europe, which is good. And so what were the hero products? When you first were developing the product, what were the, the key, you know, four or five that you started with and why? Yep. So we have around 14 products now. So still a, a fairly kind of focused, concentrated range. When we launched uh, Protein, you know, huge Vogue, you know, Protein is in Vogue and it's still, it was very much so at the time. Proteins are an amazing macronutrient. It's the building block of all cells in your body. Uh, there was a huge amount of Kind of marketing being done around how protein was uh, super important for not just kind of repair and recovery and building muscle, but also to help you kind of lose weight as part of a balanced diet and workout routine and exercise. So we wanted to create, I wanted to create a protein, a, a couple of protein blends, but I wanted to go a step further and create protein blends that were also functional in nature. So we created four individual protein blends and we call them different things. So we have the strong protein, the health protein, the fit protein, the lean protein, and each of them contain different added functional ingredients. So if I take the health protein, for example, that's our vegan protein blend. It also contains Japanese medicinal mushrooms. So I'm talking shiitake, mataki, reshi, cordyceps. Those have been used for thousands of years for kind of immune system support, antiviral properties. And then we also added um, a, a number of dark berries, Camu Camu, which is from the Amazonian uh, for, uh, rainforest. We've also got uh, acai berries in there and blueberries. So dark berries packed with antioxidants. So what you have now is not just a vegan protein, but you've got a vegan protein with all these amazing ingredients that support your health. So that's why it's called the health protein. And then the strong protein contains ingredients to support strength and muscle growth. The lean protein is all about uh, encouraging your body to metabolize fat. So it's great for uh, getting kind of leaner, as the name would suggest. And then the fit protein contains things like coconut, maca, which is a which is a root from South America. It's also got potassium, magnesium. Um, so it's all about raising energy levels and you know helping you be fitter. So what we've, what we've done is really take some of the smartest nutritional science out there and then combine them into products which are super intuitive and align with people's individual goals. So it's less of a one-size-fits-all approach. It's more of a, okay, I want to have some protein and actually let me choose the one that's right for me. So we launched those and then we had a few other products such as a pre-workout, which actually won Men's Health's best pre-workout a couple of years ago. So very proud of that product. And then some capsule products, ones for digestion, ones for relaxation, so reducing anxiety, getting people a better night's sleep, ones uh, for cognitive performance, the focus capsules. The key point is each of these products contain unique bl blends of ingredients, ingredients chosen by nutritionists, pharmacists, doctors uh, that have thousands of clinical studies and research to support their efficacy and how they can affect your health and fitness. And that was the most important thing. When you were preparing to launch, when did you launch and what was your go-to-market strategy? How did you think about it? How did you were like, you know, everybody can build a website and kind of throw up products, right? But how do you actually bring customers in? What did you do? What was kind of your strategy there? 
absolutely because you've got to validate your concept you might think you have the best idea in the world and you've got to market and no one and everyone else everyone else thinks you're dumb and that can happen i'm sure it's happened um so what i did was rather than spend a shitload of money on online advertising the first thing i did after we launched the product was just go and approach every boutique fitness studio in london just being tenacious like the story we spoke about that you told me about i just went and spoke to everyone and i just wouldn't stop getting in touch until they granted me a meeting and then i would scroll on along to their fitness studio sit down with them with my suitcase of products and i would just talk to them make a shake for them did yeah. you like literally make a shake for them on the spot like you gotta taste this i'd have samples ready to go i'd just be sat there and I'd say look let's try these products and i would like be again completely kind of tenacious and like super focused on making sure they understood our positioning our branding why i thought we were different in the market why the products were amazing why the branding was great and the branding is great uh it was great and it is great and um yeah, more often than not, people will be like, yeah, okay, we'll give you a chance. We'll stock your products and we'll see how members like them. Yeah, who are you approaching at these boutique, with like the owners, I guess, because they were boutique, right? So yeah. the owner happened to be there. Yeah, the owner would be there often. Uh, sometimes not, but often, yeah, the owner. And there were studios like, you know, F45, Big uh, Me, Block, One Rebel, Victor So, Boom Cycle, lots of kind of boutique fitness studios in London, because that kind of whole sector was really growing at that time as well. So very quickly, we ended up getting stocked in more boutique fitness studios in London than any other nutrition brand. And I pitched against big brands, smaller brands, startups, but we were we were pretty much in every studio. And then what happened was, proof stores in the pudding, the members loved the products. So the feedback we were getting from the founders was, yep, our members love your products. And that's important, right? Because if we had got the products in there and nobody had liked them, then that would have been problematic. But members loved the products, feedback we had. And that gave me, that validated the concept. That was a proof of concept for me. That told me, okay, it just, they don't just look nice and the concept, but people actually like these products. And they're, they're going back and saying to their, their, their fitness studio that these products are actually helping them get a better night's sleep or improve their cognitive performance or help them with recovery. And then that for me was, you know, that big green tick or whatever the color of the tick is, black tick, green tick, whatever. That was a big tick in the box that made me think, okay, yeah, we've got something. Now we need to push on. And how many fitness studios were you kind of in at that time where you started to see? Because I think it's also volume, right? It's like, okay, if we have like two maybe, and then one of them's working or like, you know, what were the kind of numbers that you were seeing, like with the number of studios you're in? So within, within a year, of launch, I think we were in close to a hundred studios, a hundred boutique fitness studios. Wow. You were the salesperson for all hundred. Yes. <laughs> I was the sales because I couldn't afford a salesperson. I was bootstrapping. So I was a salesperson for every one of them. I was going along, pitching, speaking, following up, following up again, following up again, making sure they took the products. And then, yeah. And so you're saying that because you're in these hundred studios, now you're starting to see them come to the website. Those customers are now looking for you online and they're buying from you direct. Absolutely. That would happen. But, you know, I was, I was very happy for them to buy from the studio. In fact, I would prefer they would buy from the studio because in the studio would obviously be happy. It's about partnerships as well. I want to represent a revenue stream for these studios. And I still do to this day. We work with lots of fitness studios today and you know, I want them to be able to sell the products and earn a revenue stream because that's a real partnership. But yeah, the word got out there, people, you know, proof of concept. And then, you know, we built a revenue stream and I was able to take that revenue stream and then reinvest it into the website, into marketing, into growing the team um, and really then just pushing on as a business. We were talking about this before. You've been growing organically. You have not raised any outside capital. That's really impressive. Do you, do you plan on raising ever or is this something strategic that you just don't really plan on doing? Yeah, I, I didn't want. I, I wanted to see what I could do organically. I, I was keen to do that. Lucky enough, we're kind of we're profitable as a business. We're in the black, so we we're now profitable. We were profitable after two years, and um, we've set record revenues year on year. Um, this year, we're not at the end of the year, but I know this year will be a record year for us. And um, yeah, businesses we've done well in that regard. At some stage, we will raise funding. I'm sure. But what I've been very keen to do is build a foundation, build a strategy, build our commercial objectives, and have bums in seats who can execute on those objectives. Once we get to that point, and I feel super confident, 
then it'll just be a case of turning on the taps. And we're very close to doing that now. And once we feel, once I feel that we all we need to do right is turn on the taps and invest, then I'll be looking to, to get funding, put it into the business and then just scale really quickly. What I don't want, what I didn't want to do, and this could be right or wrong. This is just my own personal opinion and my personal approach. What I didn't want to do is raise a shitload of money up front and then not know what to do with it or waste it or spend it on things that weren't valuable, you know, and then end up having to give away more of my business to then continue to scale. So, you know, I, it was sweat equity. I worked really hard, built this foundation, built the team, got, I've got us to where we are now. Now middle management is being hired. We've got head of marketing, marketing manager, the team's in place. We're getting very close to the point where I might start actually start looking at raising funding. I'm actually putting a pitch deck together. So um, yeah, getting closer. Next level. So how big is the team right now? There are uh, 10 of us. That's a mixture of full-time and um, how would I say it? Permanent part-timers. And it's a combination of Younger people who've come straight from university, who've been uh, who've been with me for a while now, and have grown and learned together, uh, as well as middle management, kind of more seniority now, bringing them in, bringing some expertise to overlay on that. So yeah, teams uh, teams grown grown really well, and uh, I'm really happy with everyone on the team. Uh, I've got a real camaraderie, a real spirit on the team. Uh, I think we all kind of understand that we're in this together. So yeah, really happy. I'm kind of I've always been one to want to bring a skill in-house rather than hire kind of a lot of agencies. I think it's really important to have knowledge in-house and um, which is why hiring is so important. You want to get the right people because that can take a lot of time. What has been one of the most challenging moments in building the company? You know, there's so many ups and downs and especially as first-time founders, we always make mistakes. What, what are some of those key learnings, but really kind of rough tumbles <laughs> Yeah. So if you're, you're asking me what kind of mistakes I made, well, mm-hmm. uh, pretty, pretty, pretty much everything, Lee, pretty much everything. Was it Bertrand Russell who said um, the fundamental cause of trouble in the modern world is the stupid are cocksure while um, the intelligent are full of doubt? To be honest with you, I was pretty stupid, I think, when I kind of like set the business up because I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And um, it was, you know, just like, I look back now and I think, oh my Lord, what was I thinking? I really didn't know anything when I set the business up. I had the fundamentals, but there was so much I didn't know. And uh, maybe that that lack, that stupidity or that lack of knowledge was what gave me the bravery to actually get to where we are now. A huge number of mistakes. And you learn as long as you learn from your mistakes, it's it's a good thing. So I think one of the mistakes, I mean, there's there's mistakes such as our e-commerce platform, for example, we used, um, I was trying to figure out which e-commerce stack we should use to set up our website. This is a specific story. And I went for, I won't say the name of them, but I went for a particular brand and um, launched the, the initial v, V1 version of the website on this platform and quickly became apparent that it was the wrong choice because the website would keep falling over and I'd be there pulling my hair out and people would be emailing because the the auditing goes through and I was sitting there with my head in my hands thinking, what on earth have I done here? I've made the wrong decision. I didn't know. I thought it was the right decision, but it wasn't. And the reason ultimately was because the platform itself, there wasn't, there wasn't anything wrong with it, but it was kind of like I'd chosen, are you familiar with Formula One, F1? Yeah, it was basically, I'd basically got an F1 car. Powerful, and I had people to drive it, but the problem with an F1 car is if something goes wrong with it, you got to spend a huge amount of money to fix it. So it might be the best thing on the market, but you know, the devil's in the detail. Like maintaining that F1 car costs a lot of money, and lots of things can go wrong with that F1 car. I would have much preferred to have bought a, a Mercedes or something like that, which is like roadworthy and it's going to get you from A to B. And it's still really nice, but it's just not an F1 car. And um, so I realized that and it took a long time then to transition from, because I, I couldn't just transition straight away. We spent a lot of money building this website. So I had to try to make it work. Um, but then when I had the opportunity to do so, I transitioned from there to a different platform. We're on Shopify now. So much nicer and more <laughs> easier to use 
and I can focus my time on other things rather than worrying about an order not going through or the website having loads of bugs in it. And yeah, so that, that, that was probably the number one mistake I made because I felt like I was like this big hole had opened up below me when it kind of dawned on me that I'd made the wrong, that I'd made a mistake on this. And I felt like it was going to swallow me up, but thankfully I, thankfully I persevered. And the more money you invest in something, the more money, the more you don't think you can get out of it because you're now you're in and you, you got to dig yourself out. And that's like harder than just plowing forward. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. that feeling because you're like, I'm, I'm investing in this thing. But so you have to grow faster than than that in order to be able to do it. And luckily, I was able to do it. But that, looking back, that one decision could have, you know, finished the whole business. If I hadn't gone and done that, those, that, that sales job that I did, that could have been it. And there's probably a couple of different times that that could have happened, but yeah, that was certainly one of them. So I look back now and like, think, wow, yeah. I probably actually lit a fire under my, my backside, um, to make me go and get those hundred <laughs> studios. Cause I realized if I don't get these damn hundred studios on board, this website is going to drag me down. So I need to do, I need to work even harder. Oh, interesting. So was that another reason for that strategy was that you actually didn't have like an on a secure online website to kind of. Uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think it, it may, it really focused my mind and made me think, wow, look, I got one opportunity. I need to really strive and drive this because I can't, I'm not sure if the website is going to hold, is going to be, able, we're going to be able to scale uh, on the D to C side with this website the way it is. So we've got to get this B2B going. When I say we, I mean me, because I hadn't had anyone. Yeah, because I wonder how many people would have chosen to, instead of go outside of the online, they would have just focused on trying to fix, 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 fix the problem on the website instead of think outside the box and say, I need revenue now. Yeah, I was trying to do that too. I was doing at the same time, I was trying to fix the website, but I was like, there's, there's opportunities here. And I, and, um, yeah, you got to take an omni-channel approach to these things. Because I wasn't sure, you know, at the time, hindsight's a wonderful thing, right, Lee? At the time, like, yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, this website's not where I'm going to go on a Shopify. But I had no idea. What if I went to Shopify and that was that was a dud as well? Then I would have had a serious problem. So, yeah. I think Shopify is pretty safe. I mean, I don't know, back then, maybe it wasn't so prominent, but now it's like, that's just the go-to, you know. No, no, no. Shopify has been great. Yeah. It's been great building the platform and the website. I'm so happy with it. You go, you go to the website, liveinamost.com. It looks nice. It works. I can go make changes myself with the previous platform. You know, if I wanted to make a change to something, it took about a week's worth of development time. And like, oh my God, it was a nightmare. So what are some limiting beliefs that you've had to overcome to get to where you are? I think it goes back to like that internship, to be honest with you. Like my whole approach growing up, I think this is the way we've been raised and where we've come from. I think we've been brought up to be tough and resilient and never take no for an answer. And I think it hasn't been a limiting belief, but I can see in a lot of people who think something's impossible or something's not possible. They're not going to do it. They're not going to attempt it. And I've always tried to check that if that feeling ever comes across my mind. What you can achieve is really limited in large part by your imagination. And, um, you know, limiting beliefs are just that. Beliefs that limit you. And I think if you want to have a, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to have a successful business, inherently what we're doing is kind of crazy. Yeah. We're kind of doing something that's crazy. And I think if you go into it thinking you can't achieve something, you're going to have a problem. I think you have to have a little bit of that. Bertrand Russell said that stupidity, a little bit of naivety in order to think that you can do something that hasn't been done before or do something that's like, you know, create a brand in a super competitive market and have it grow. And so I think kind of believe you can. Yeah. I love that fine line of like, it may not happen, but if it does, how awesome would that be? And yeah. I just can't resist trying, yeah. you know, because yeah. the the thought of pulling something off that feels impossible mm. is just the biggest thrill. Yeah. Where, where does that come from? You said in childhood, you kind of, you know, grew up that way. But is there something you did as a kid that kind of instilled that confidence? I would almost characterize it as this 
kind of belief that no one's going to give you anything and you have to go and get it. And I don't know if that's related to our upbringing or, you know, the fact that my parents came here in the sixties and, you know, we didn't like, we had modest, a modest upbringing, but you know, if you want something, you got to go and get it. Don't wait for someone to give you something. It's not going to happen. Because there was no one, had, no, there was no one around to give us anything growing up. We had to go and earn it. My dad worked seven days a week. Mom would work. Like we had to go and get it. Like I had to go to school, had to study. Like I didn't have any, like, you know, back at home. I mean, I wasn't able to go and really like sit down with anyone and like go through my algebra or like speak to someone about university. We just had to go and figure it out and get it. And don't rely on anyone else. Just go and do it. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that probably informs the, uh, probably ask my colleagues, but they'd probably say that's how I operate today. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if it comes from us thinking back, being told no as a kid. I feel like there's a lot of like parenting books that say, don't ever tell your kid no, you know, but I swear that like as a kid being told you can't have this, we can't afford that, blah, 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 just kind of made the fire in me to be like, I can't wait to buy that cereal myself one day, you know? <laughs> As a six-year-old being told you can't have the name brand cereal is something that like I couldn't, I was like bringing my a fake wallet to the grocery store, you know, as a kid, I couldn't wait to buy my own groceries. Just couldn't wait to just get the right cereal, you know? Yes. And I think it comes from being told, no, like I couldn't have it. You know, it was like, it was not given to you. It wasn't, you have to go get it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and my mom's always been super positive. I keep going back to my mom, but she's she's always been super positive. And I think she's her and my dad's personalities are very different, but my mom's certainly the one who's the optimist. So she's the one who's sitting there and like saying, look, you can do anything. Just go and go for it. Just do it. So it was that sense of optimism and that encouragement. You need it, right? Because my dad would be the slightly more dour, you know? Like you got to work hard and you get some good grades and you'd be like, okay, great. And then he'd go off and do his own thing. And so you're like, you're striving to impress him. And mom's like, you're amazing. You're great. You can do anything. So you need <laughs> that. I felt like that combination yeah. was great for us because, you know, yeah, good combo. So yeah, maybe that was it. <laughs> so before we wrap up here, do you have any final advice for anybody tuning in, thinking about starting a business? So yeah, I've got a few a few things I can share. Um, so advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. I put up a LinkedIn post uh, not too long ago uh, where I was talking about five of my, what I would call personal habits of success. And I think I've used these to great effect at innermost. But habit one would be organization. Uh, you can achieve so much more if you're organized and you set goals and priorities. So I would highly recommend anyone who's looking to set up a business to spend time to get a process in place that works for you. Being organized is probably the number one most important thing for me that's helped us get us to where we are today. Um, habit two, uh, long-term greedy. Uh, and that's a, a term that I'm kind of borrowing from my Goldman Sachs days. But um, so many people focus on getting as much money out of a client or out of your consumers as quickly as possible. I'd recommend ditching that. Take a long-term view to your client relationships and you'll see your business grow in the long-term. Your customer is the most important thing. So making sure that they can feel the fact that you care about them. You're not just there to get their order or their money is, is super important. The third habit I would say is stay humble. There's always more to learn uh, and getting carried away with your success is probably the first step in a, in a downward spiral. So keep evolving. Aim for the stars, obviously. Believe that you can achieve it and can really drive for it and don't stop going, but, but stay humble. And then habit four uh, is believe. There's lots of doubters out there. Sometimes you'll doubt yourself. And when that happens, it's really important to stay the course. But having a positive attitude, it isn't just the result of being successful. It's one of the causes of success. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. And then um, fifth habit is, is health. Watch your diet, exercise regularly, prioritize your health. It's the single most important thing that you have. Uh, and it's completely subject to the decisions you make every day. I like that health is included because that's something that isn't spoken about a lot is how important it is to prioritize your health, especially with working 
remotely. You know, everybody's, a lot of people are working remote now more than ever. And I found it personally to be actually a struggle to be healthy because it's just back-to-back Zoom meetings and I'm skipping lunch. I'm skipping water. Like, you know, it's, it's, it gets bad if we aren't really blocking out time to go to the gym, be healthy, eat the right things. Um, yeah, it's really tough to find that balance. I think today more than ever. Absolutely. Well, Shiv, thank you so much for being on the show. Super excited to have you. Thank you for sharing your amazing story. And uh, I love those five habits of success. Those are awesome. Thank you so much. I've had a ball ball speaking to you. I knew this would be fun. So thank you very much, Lee, for inviting me along. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.